This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends new cartridges before you run out. So you never have to think about ink. For details, visit hp.com slash instant ink Spotify. Conditions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Chapter Tactics, your 40K podcast which focuses on playing Warhammer 40K competitively at all levels of the game. I'm your host, Pablo, and today I have the two of the three head honchos for the Renegade Open GT, David and Puck. Say hi, guys. Hi, guys. Hi, guys. Old joke is old. <laughs> all right. Um, so if you don't know anything about the Renegade Open GT, it was a GT on November 18th, I want to say. Uh the 18th to the 20th? Yep, Apparently. that is correct. Right. I remember that. I get some things right occasionally. <laughs> uh, but it was a, a large event, and it had a unique format that I actually am a big fan of. They played 1,650 points, and I'll let Puck go in a little more detail about that. Okay. Uh, yeah, we had our events on November 18th, 19th, and 20th, and we uh, had uh, two, 222 I think out of 252 people show up to our event. We had seven events going on, um, four on Friday, two on Saturday, two on Sunday. And uh, it was fantastic. All right. That's, and how many people ended up playing 40K? We had 60, uh, I think 61. 60, 62. 60, 62 players, yep. Yep, which is good. That's a major. So that's great. That's great right there. And uh, David, I heard you were the head judge there. Uh, yes, sir. That is correct. And, yeah, we had 62 players out of the 76 uh, who signed up, which literally maxed out the room. We may or may not have violated a fire code <clears throat> yeah. uh, to have that many people in there. But, uh, yeah, it was it was good. Uh, 1650 and, uh, you know, our unique format, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. All right. Uh, so for today's episode, guys, we are going to go over something I've always personally wanted to talk about, which is mission crafting theory. Uh, because every event, this is the beauty of the ITC, by the way, um, it, not every event has the same exact missions. Of course, a lot of events do use those generic ITC missions, and those are geared um, more towards, I don't, I don't want to say a uh, more casual audience, but they are sim- more simplified than, let's say, the Renegade Open or Nova, who have a lot more complicated missions. And that's okay. I, I think there's room for all different kinds of missions. So we're going to go over that a little bit and why the Renegade Open picked their specific missions and crafted them for their local meta. And I also want to talk about some Imperial Agent stuff. Uh, I'm not going to have an entire podcast devoted to it because it's not as overwhelming and crazy as the Trader Legions book or the Wrath of Magnus book. But there's still some stuff in there that might affect the competitive meta. And then we're also going to talk about the Renegade Open and how cool it was. All right. So first things first, let's go ahead and talk a little bit more about the Renegade Open. This is the primer. I've got it in my hands, or actually not in my hands, um, right in front of me right now, the primer packet, and then we're going to start from the top. So armies will consist of 1,650 points or less. That's already huge. And, uh, David, how did this affect the flow of the tournament scene? Because I know there was a huge debate about three months ago now uh, where we wanted to go to a lower points cost, but that didn't happen, and... That was because the game is getting more complicated and turns were going too long. So 
how did sixteen fifty points do for you guys? So for us, sixteen fifty was a major success. Uh, in total, throughout the entire weekend, 186 games were played. Uh, that's 62 people times six rounds, and then divided by two for the number of people per table. Uh, 97%, so 176 games, were reported by players as finishing naturally, meaning that they ended on a die roll on turn five or six, they finished turn seven, or somebody was tabled. Let's go. say that again. 97% of all games finished naturally. And this is last year. How was that, David? Uh, (laughs) Last year, we had uh, 174 games were played, 58 players, uh, yada, yada. So we had 57% of those games, 99 games, so not even 100 games, finished naturally at 1850 using the exact same format. That's a... Wow. Um, so, so obviously, and this is, I, I was actually a proponent of 1,650 points um, because I felt like it was the closest to 1,850 that you could get because 1,500 points was just a little, it was almost felt like a completely different meta. Um, but there were some, there were some cons to 1,650 that people like to bring up. Things like Battle Company and War Convocation armies would be a lot more powerful because of the free stuff that they get. They would be, you know, more accented in their lists and people would be able to take advantage of them better. So how did Battle Company and War Convocation fare at your event? So uh, the only War Convocation that made it into our top eight was by Matthew Root. Of course, Matt Root. Matt Root, and that was it. Uh, He was the only free points. Everybody else was either Tau or Demons or Renegades. We did have an Elder. And and one Elder? Yes, one Elder. One Elder player. One Elder player in the top eight. Yeah, one. I don't even believe he had a wraith knight in his list. Whoa. He did not. He did not. He had he had dual war punter, uh, spiders, uh, dire avengers, dire avengers, and bikes. Not bad. Okay. So so, so not at all. So guys, yeah. um, I don't know if we're ever going to get the chance to vote again on that. Um, but 1650 points for UTOs listening, that's that's a good thing to look at, especially if you feel like your events are going a little longer and people aren't finishing. Um, you obviously obviously can also increase the time, but sometimes that's not always the case logistically. Sometimes you just can't do that. You don't have the hall for a certain amount of time, um, or you don't think your players would like to play later on into the night, which is completely fair. So 1,650 points. The Renegade Open so far approves it. Do you, do you guys know of any other events that played at 1,650 points? Uh, the Midwest not- Conquest will be going to 1,650 in... Um- May. At the end of May. May. Yeah. Yep. They are, and uh, the Bug Eater GT is also going to be doing 1650 this year. Okay, and, and that's actually one thing I wanted to highlight as well, is uh, over there in the Midwest, they have the Midwest TO's uh, support group, which is basically the Midwest Conquest GT is one event, the Renegade Open is another event, um, the I... I we have Bug Eater, we Bug have Eater. Dragonfall, Dragonfall. Uh, Flying Monkeys GT is Flying, part of it. That's what I'm thinking of, Flying Monkey. Uh, Wog, Wogpacka. And Wog, Wog, the Wogpacka. Like um, and then uh, the, and the name escapes Iron me. Halo Iron Halo GT. Iron Halo, thank you. Yeah. We GT also have also. Chris Merstead from Adepticon in there as well. Nice. So so for those of you who don't know, that's uh, those are large events. A, lot of, a couple of those are really large events. And the... They're uh, basically you guys got a group of TOs in the Midwest together, and you guys talk about things like mission and mission crafting and going down points and kind of designing the best possible tournament scene. And I think it's working. Uh, the Iron Halo GT I heard was a rousing success. Uh, Jake Jason Horn yep. was the head TO there. Jason Horn he he ran a great event. 
Um, Flying Monkey GT, I heard a lot of good things about, and that's kind of where Matt Root is dominating, right? He's is the Midwest. I know he lives in the Midwest. Yeah, yeah he's, he's here been from doing Minnesota. very well. So he's just kind of. So you guys are kind of fueling the Matt Root train right now. Uh, yes and no. <laughs> I mean, he doesn't do amazing at every event, and he hasn't that's done true. super well at even every Midwest event. But right. yes, we we do fuel the the Matt Root train just a little bit, apparently. Yeah, he does travel a lot. He does travel a lot. He he plays he plays second at the BAO, which is huge. He also got best overall at the Renegade Open. I think he won the Flying Monkey GT, and he also won there in Halo GT. Yeah, so he's doing doing pretty yes. good for himself. Matt Root has a huge list of accolades. Um, but I would say that the Midwest tournament scene is Matt Root's home playing field, personally. Yes, yep, definitely. Yeah, that's the place where he gets to go to the most events. It's a little harder for us to get out to the coast because uh, flights tend to be expensive. Okay. Uh, now moving on in your primer packet, the I, I noticed here that there's so far I haven't seen anything that lets you duplicate formation or duplicate detachments. Um, so you can take up to three detachments, same thing as an ITC. Uh, but are you allowed to duplicate your like a CAD or take yes. another? Okay. So, so you are allowed to take any number of combined arms detachments. So if you wanted all three of your detachments to be CADs, cool. okay. they can be three CADs. Where it becomes unique is the codex-specific detachments, such as like Nemesis Strike Force, uh, or unique formations that are taken outside of a detachment, So, such as Dakarian detachments, right? So if I wanted to take Libby Conclave, but I don't want it to be part of a Cladius, then that is a unique formation now, taken as that formation or data slate. Okay. Okay, so pretty standard. Pretty standard stuff. And then... And then go ahead. zero one allied detachment. And we put a note in there that says, per raw, your allied detachment must be different than your primary faction. Yeah, and then you guys didn't change that for Tyranids either, because Tyranids can take cats now, which is good. Yep. All right. And then the other thing that I wanted to, that I noticed was uh, spending a total of 700 points on Lords of War. So what what made what got you to that number seven hundred points specifically? Uh, it so that's that was a holdover because we were trying to limit the number of variables from one year to the other uh, from our eighteen fifty construction from the previous year. Okay, uh, and we came to that number because it was roughly a thir- it's a rounded out point value that is as close to a third of the army. Uh, as you could get without being either less than a third, 600, or just, eh, open door, let it fly. Okay. Right? Uh, the worst things that it would, quote-unquote, that it would allow in were uh, greater brass scorpions and townars. Okay. All right. And speaking of townars, the supremacy suit was allowed at your event, um, and at Andrew Gagno did take first place best general with the townar, and I believe your top table um, – because you guys use a pod system, and we'll go over that a little later. Uh, so your top table was two Townars playing against each other. Uh, so my question to you guys is, is with the Supremacy Suit winning the the uh, Warzone Atlanta tournament, which is another large event, how is the how did the Supremacy Suit shape the kind of the overall mood and feel of your event? So there was some negative feedback for us allowing the Townars, <clears throat> especially directly on the heels of Warzone Atlanta having so many of them present at their event, and uh, I believe three of them made made it into their top eight yeah. uh, with uh, not winning, though. Not winning. To they be fair, yeah. Be beaten. <laughs> uh, did, did play second, did play on top table, but didn't win. Uh, whereas both of the Townars that showed up to the Renegade Open finished uh, first and second. Uh, second place was Jeremiah Pettit, who was also playing a Townar. 
Uh, Gagnon was playing it with the Nexus Missile Array and a Riptide Wing, and Pettit was playing it with the Heavy Rail Cannon and an Optimized Stealth Cadre as its support. Uh, both had Tetras, both had Fire Warriors, you know, to round out a CAD. Okay. And then, uh, but this, these are the first two events other than uh, the Southwest GT, which uh, was won by uh, Josh Death uh, with a Townar, yes. if I remember correctly. Um, so they've won two events out of the seven that they were allowed over the course of the last year. Right, right. But they were they were at least a top eight. They at least top eighted in at least half of them. I want to say they top eighted in three, maybe yep. four. Um, they top eighted in three. Uh, to our knowledge. And, yep, and they did. As a for instance, they did not top eight for either the Renegade GT 2015 or for uh, Midwest Conquest 2016. Right. No, they didn't. Both events they, saw. Yeah. yeah, both saw two town hours show up, and both of them got. Uh, mission defeated constantly. Like they just, there was not, they weren't that amazing. So what that tells me is that yes, it's a powerful tool, but if it needs to be still be in the hands of a guy who has a lot of experience with it and opposing other people's armies, it still needs to be in the hands of a quote unquote top tier player. Uh, I agree, and and that's actually true. In the Midwest Conquest GG results, that actually shaped the the supremacy suits. Kind of, it's it's kind of solidified its identity in the tournament scene, right? Because it didn't. I remember it didn't do that well at the Midwest Conquest GT, and then the discourse around it was, it's not that good. It's okay. It's not that great. And then obviously we're going, we're coming back to it now after two tournament wins in a a one month span, and then of course it's top eighting, and then of course it's unfun, blah blah blah, yada yada. And that's okay. That's a completely opinion, and I'll leave my opinion out of it. So. Going, I guess that leads into the question for you guys. So will you guys allow the supremacy suit next year at the Renegade Open? Well, next uh, year we're going uh, to be using the whitelist that ITC uses. Okay. So, so if the ITC doesn't allow it, then we won't be either. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and that was a decision to just kind of normalize the expectation of what can and can't be taken. Uh, and that, that's for good. That's our good. Builds. Yeah, because so you want you want that consistency throughout your tournaments, and I think that's that's a perfectly reasonable thing. Um, you, as long as you guys don't change your mission format or the points cost, which I think is is spot on, um, you guys can definitely follow that. And I, I, you know, it's supremacy suit right now has a bad rep, and who knows in a year a year from now it might it might get nerfed. Um, mm-hmm. If eighth edition rumors hold true, maybe maybe it'll be changed completely, maybe not, maybe it'll be even stronger. And, and we won't even have this debate. But right now, it's kind of in that middle of the road where it's it's perceived as strong, but might not be the strongest thing. But as you guys know, and as I know, perception is more important than actual fact. If people perceive that your event's going to be unfun because of a specific model, you might want to consider taking that model out, even if it means three or four people can't use their big toy. That so, was our that was our uh, perception as well. Yep. All right. Yeah. Moving on. Personally, to, I think good? that. For just as the last point for the Townar, the only reason that I think that it uh, weighs so heavily as unfun, especially at ITC events, is because of nerfed range D. Um, if if there was unnerfed D, a single unit of Wraith Guard or two Warp Hunters or uh, anything with D size or multiple D shots can, in fact, actually nuke that thing in one turn. Right, and that's, that's a fair point. Shoot, yeah, because the shield gets turned off, and then you take half the wounds. Well, if only three wounds are going to happen on a six, then, oh, guess what? I take two, because the rulebook says round up. So 
I take two wounds, and then I lose my invuln for the rest of the turn. Did you have more D? Well, you're going to need, like, five more of it just to kill me. Uh, okay, that's brutal. But an unnerfed D, it would take two or three. Okay. Right? I, I do agree. Um, there's obviously, without getting too much into that argument and debate, uh, the yep. supremacy suit is does fare a little worse in the, an ITC kind of standard ITC environment as opposed to a pure 7th edition environment. And that's kind of where... TOs kind of have to figure out where that balance is, right? Um, yep. It's pure ITC. Is that what you want? Is that what you're good, it's good for your local meta? Or is leaning more towards like Nova and Adepticon more towards pure 7th edition 40k where you kind of let all that stuff in, right? And kind of just let, let the players play the game. Absolutely. Right. So it's, it's, that's the balance. And that's what, that's kind of stuff you guys think about when you're actually crafting your missions. Uh, because you can kind of, at the end of the day, you have a 7th edition rulebook that's really complicated that has rules. Uh, and you need to shape it a certain way because Eternal War missions just don't cut it, right? And then that's why you guys came up with, a, I think, a really good, unique mission set that I personally would love to play, and it looks like I would enjoy playing with it. So do you want to talk about it? Well, it all came from a, a meeting um, before the, the third Renegade Open. We were, we were talking about what we can do with our missions and how can we make it more tactical. And we were like, we could do this, we could do that, and we... we uh, we decided to go in this format because it creates asymmetry and allows people to, like, oh, hey, there is the Tauter right there. Well, I'll have to do this mission if I'm going to have a chance to win because I won't be able to take that that beast down. Okay. All right. So l- let me just go ahead and uh, let me explain the primary missions, how, how I read them, and then you guys can correct me if I'm wrong um, and okay. maybe give me a verbal slap in the face if I really mess up. <laughs> so we have a uh, primary mission, which is worth four points. Uh, a secondary maelstrom mission, which is also worth four points, and then you have ter- tertiary objectives. Um, they're all, they're th- each of them is the same. There's always Linebreaker, Slay the Warlord, and Solo Blood, which we will explain after all this, and for a total of 11 points, correct? Yep, it uses okay. the same uh, mission pointing system as the ITC. Perfect. And then your primary missions, you've got you've got four. And then you need to pick each one once through your first four rounds. And then rounds five and six, you get to duplicate two. Uh, so it's you pick uh, for the first three rounds, and then for the second three rounds, you pick again. Okay. The idea being that um, while we want to encourage players to play as much of the variety of 40K as possible, which then allows them to build their armies exactly the way they want to build them and then play them to those strengths, we realize that we can't force you to play everything because if we did that, that would give you two good games that you're probably good at, whether you're good at objectives, which we have two variants of, or destruction, which we have two variants of. So rather than trying to force everybody to do all of it, it's here. You will get one bad matchup. You're going to have to take one bad matchup, and hopefully you get, get it against an opponent that you'll actually meet that success with you know, yes. in terms of how your army was designed. Absolutely. And so the four primary missions are objectives, uh, which is you hold more endgame objectives than your opponent. That's the primary mission. Uh, Purge the alien, which is obvious. Assassination, which I like. It's right down on your mission sheet. Before deployment, three enemy units, you must destroy them. Um, I believe if you destroy all of them, you get the missionary point, or that's that's it, right? You get the primary mission. You have to get all three. You have to get all three. So it's not more than your opponent. It's all three. Correct. 
Okay. So your your primary mission is the assassination of those three units. Those three have been like if you want to think of it in fluff terms, those three units have been identified as either command vehicles or they're carrying special cargo or they're going to be tasked with another mission in the future that you want to prevent them from securing or being a part of. So okay. your army's objective is to kill those three. All right. And then uh, it's not secret, right? You just you write it down on the score sheet and then you and your opponent know which which units are which units are important, basically. Yes. Uh, As it says, as part of the primary, you're supposed to reveal it to your opponent before infiltrate and scout. Okay, perfect. And then the uh, table quarters, which is you just at the beginning of your turn, um, if you have the majority of your models in a table quarter, you get a point. And then you have to have Uh, more than your opponent, I think, is that's what it is? It's at the end of each player turn. So you and your opponent are going to be playing this running tally. Uh, It's basically of holding ground. So... At the end of your turn, you count up the number of table quarters that you're controlling. And, yes, it's number of units that are wholly within that table quarter. Uh, and they and OBSEC units get to count as two. So OBSEC still matters here. Okay. And uh, then at the end of your opponent's turn, they count up how many table quarters they hold. And then at the end of the game, whoever has held more table quarters, who's held more ground throughout the course of the game, that is the winner of table quarters. Okay, so this is actually – I really like this. So let's focus on the primary missions before we get to the Maelstrom secondary. Uh, I really like the idea of, for example, saving your Purge the Alien pick for a Battle Company player, right? Because, like, you, you might you might feel strongly um, – you might have an army geared more towards both the Table Quarters and the end-of-game missions. Um, but if you have a Battle Company player and you know you can kill points him, you just take kill points. And then that's kind of like almost a free four points. But then he gets to pick Table Quarters – and then he gets to play the table quarter game, and maybe you guys tie. So it's, it just, I like that it adds another el- layered element of tactics to the game that you don't normally see. Both players are both simultaneously trying to score their own objective and also deny their opponent their objective. And also on top of that, you're going into your secondary, you're, you're caring about your secondary missions, which is the Maelstrom, where you get to pick, you have 12 options. And, um, they're all, they are basically the generic ITC missions, but all kind of listed throughout 12 different options. So you have, uh, one, two, and three are control, either objective one, either objective two, and either objective three. And then four is have more units outside of 12 inches from your own board edge than your opponent. So kind of like no man's land. And then five through seven are destroy an enemy unit. Eight is have at least one unit wholly within six inches of the center. So kind of king of the hill. Nine is control more of maelstrom objective markers than your opponent. Ten is destroy a nominated unit this turn, so like one assassinated unit, and yep. then eleven and twelve are line breaker and reverse line breaker, quote unquote. So yep. basically, at the beginning of your turn, you would pick two of these, and you have to score those two, but you only get to score those two when you pick them. So if you pick control either objective one and destroy one enemy unit, if you ref- if you fail to do that, you lose a destroy the enemy one unit choice, and you lose the choice to control either objective one later on in the game it's all yeah. about tactics if you don't uh, pick right you're gonna lose that game right so, so you have and you have to do this every turn um i think that's huge uh, i think i think uh there's definitely a lot of high scoring games i imagine i, I don't i wouldn't be 100 percent sure but i imagine it comes down to at the end of the game who who picked what or who saved what right because if you destroyed a destroy an enemy unit for the end of the game and that's pretty much the only feasible one you can get and your opponent set up so that you can't destroy a unit that might screw you over. So it's kind of it's kind of 
I feel like early on you can get a lot of points, specifically these points, um, but I imagine the games are decided at the end by maybe one or two points by Maelstrom. I don't know, I haven't played the mission or the missions. Yeah, so that's, that's typically what we've seen is that um, armies will be able to uh, actually succeed at uh, scoring like six or seven of these, and then the others they just they can't because their opponent will have done something either during their own turn or in the way that deployment happened, or just even the matchup, uh, it makes it impossible to score the rest of them. So then you have to really concentrate on not only scoring those six or seven that you believe you can get, but then also denying your opponent scoring as many as well. Uh, There are two additional, however, uh, options beyond the 12 that you pick from. And just like ITC, you pick at the beginning of your turn and then score at the beginning of the next turn, right, rather than roll 3d6 and then pick two. The two optional ones are called push them back, which is you choose two of your control either objective uh, maelstroms. So you could pick, say, control either one and control either three. You don't have to pick one and two or two and three. You can just pick any two of them, and uh, you sacrifice them to gain an attempt at a new one called push them back. And what this is is that it tasks you to then control any three Renegade Maelstrom objectives. So let's say that you have uh, one and one is, you know, next to your own deployment, in your own deployment zone, and then you have a three that's, like, right outside of it. <laughs> well, the numbers don't matter for this. It's just hold three objective markers. So if you can hold those three until the beginning of your next turn, you'll score three points instead of the usual one. Yeah. But it consumes both of your choices for the round. That's good. try this. And, and then the other one ahead. is and the other one is called Slay Them All. Choose two of your completely destroy one enemy unit maelstroms. Sacrifice them to gain a new one called Slay Them All. You must completely destroy three enemy units to gain three points instead of one. And again, it consumes both of your choices this round to do so. Okay, so I have two questions. Uh, my yes. first question, when do you decide to go for three? So you have to pick this uh, when you pick your maelstroms, right? Okay. So if I say I'm going to go for hold either one and hold either two, but I think I can actually hold three objective markers along the table. It's just maybe not those two. Then I can sacrifice them, and then I I can hold any three of the markers. And if I can hold at least three markers by the start of my next turn, then I'll score those three points. Right. Uh, So you don't have to do it. So so it doesn't replace those two um, at the start of the game or anything. Correct. Yeah, it replaces them when you call upon them, which does mean, though, if you pick two completely destroy a unit or two control either objectives and you manage to fail one along the way and now you only have one left, you're boned. You've lost your chance to get push them back or slay them all. Tactics, baby. (laughs) I like it. I like it a lot. And then the tertiary objectives, uh, Linebreaker and Warlord are same as the rulebook. And then Solo Blood replaces First Blood in all instances and do you want to explain Solo Blood? Because I really like it, but I feel like I might not give it justice. So Solo Blood is something that we actually had gotten from uh, a local TO, and we liked it so much we decided to add it to our own event. Basically, on your turn, you destroy an enemy unit. Then if your opponent does not destroy a unit of yours, then you got Solo Blood, and it takes the place of First Blood. However, any point during the game, your opponent can also achieve solo blood by destroying one of your units and you don't destroy one of his. So what it does is it prevents that first blood auto win that, that sometimes some games have fallen to. 
That's, yeah. and, that's really cool. And it takes place over an entire game turn. So during, during game turn one, game turn two, game turn three, etc. right? So it has to be that you have killed something and your opponent has not during that game turn. Which is hard to do. Which is really hard to do. But if you can do it, you get the point. And that that was kind of the whole goal for that was that uh, when we decided to adopt this um, four years ago, it was because, A, we thought it was a cool mechanic because the local guy, you know, had come up with it. And we decided that, yes, we wanted to use it. But the biggest reason that we decided we wanted to use it was because of Adepticon that year. That was the last year or what was that? That was the first year of sixth edition. And for Adepticon, 90 percent of their games. Let me say that again. 90% of their games in the top 16 on day two were decided by first blood. Ugh, that's that's really bad. <laughs> so that meant that going first was so insanely paramount, and being able to have that first turn kill was so insanely paramount that it didn't matter anything else that your opponent could do. If you got first blood, you were going to win. Right, and that's actually the biggest problem with first blood is a lot of times, in, in Adepticon's case, 90% of the time, uh, you the game is decided by uh, die roll, the, the who goes first or who decides who goes first. Because it's not always who goes first. It's sometimes I have a null deploy army. I want to go second. Oh, I went second. You, I, I'm going to take first blood. You lose. Right. And there's a bunch of armies that also have the ability to affect that die roll. Yes. As well. So. Yeah. Which which favor? And not every army has a way to affect. Like for example, orcs don't have a way to affect that die roll, uh, or dark Eldar, or I think Eldar. Um, but no one cares about Eldar. They suck. <laughs> they don't need that. A terrible army. I can't believe anybody plays <laughs> uh, But you, you, and that's that can for a lot of players that can be unfair, right? And and that's actually that is unfair. That's not. It can be. It is unfair for players that want like orc players or um, Eldar players or Tau players, whatever. But it is unfair for those players that bring those specific armies that they want to play, that they feel like they can win with, but they pull the matchup where they can't get first blood or their opponent gets first blood, and then they lose. So that's that's good that you guys replace that with solo blood. Solo blood is also tactically better because you you might want to decide, well, I could put my rhino out there in range and kind of like out of terrain um, for that objective, but I don't want to give up solo blood. I just killed my opponent's... I don't know, tactical squad or something, right? And then, right. yeah, so you might not want to give up that easy Rhino for that easy solo blood, um, so you might not go for that objective. Or it, it's just, there's little intricate ways it can affect the game, which is you're you're adding intricacies, tactical intricacies to the game, and you're taking out, uh, with 1,650 points, you're taking out the boring, kind of re- generic, redundant things in the game that make the game longer and replacing them with tactical things that might make the game more fun, which is good. Which Accuracy, is maybe. very good. Yeah, it's always good and has always been our goal is to make the player is to make the player experience better because uh, and it's especially true with the with our primary mission selection it's and the maelstrom it was always what can we do to give the player the most control so that he can feel like he has a chance no matter what quote unquote busted ass net list he's going up against. That's that's or good. <laughs> or or you or busted ass unit. Right. Okay. And then one last thing um, before we leave the primer and go on to the main topic. So there, there's one thing that also differs your event from a lot of other events that I've seen, and that's the rolling off to place the terrain and placing the terrain before the uh, actual game instead of having like a 
a set map? And why did you guys go for that? So the reason we went for that is so that um, it, it, it's actually two reasons. One, it's more player control, which, you know, again, gives you the same options as, okay, maybe I can at least place terrain and choose my battlefield a little bit better, you know, so that the enemy doesn't have a total advantage against me. The second is also to help TOs, right? And what I mean by that is that this way, even if you end up with guys playing on the exact same table number, and this happens like every single GT or major event, I swear <laughs> to God it will, because there's too many people. Somebody's going to play on the exact same table again, and they're going to be like, dude, I already played here. What's up? And then well, they'll want to move, and we're like, we don't have time for this. Yeah, we don't <laughs> have time. We need to get the round going, yada, yada. This allows the players to go, hmm, yes, I'm on the same table number, but the battlefield is not going to be the same. I can change it. Maybe I learned something from my last game, and now I can actually make this work better for me. Yeah, there's actually I, – there's you. I cannot count – how many times I played on the same table um, where I took a side because one piece of terrain was just far superior to all the other pieces of terrain on the board. I'm like, okay, I want that side. My opponent's like, why? I'm like, well, that ruin right there won my opponent the game last round, so I want that ruin right there in my in my deployment zone. That is my ruin, uh, which, which would be kind of cool for this specific scenario is if you do get that extra terrain piece or you kind of if you have an eye for ruin and terrains that you know fits your army things like ruins for orcs or something you can immediately snag the best piece of terrain if you if you roll and you get it right well yes which you can do and then to help further the sense of balance for us we we actually recommend it, it doesn't say it necessarily uh in the primer that you're forced to but uh, we recommend using just six larger pieces of terrain. And then that way there's good line of sight blocking. The players can place it, you know, for line of sight blocking if they uh-huh. want. It takes up a significant portion of the board, you know, about 25% or more. And uh, it gives, you know, and with only six pieces, large pieces like that, placing terrain goes really quickly. It's lit- The longest thing for it is literally the die roll and then the first piece that has to be selected. Okay, so you guys don't have little pieces of terrain like... Uh little trees and little things like that? No. No, we, we got buildings and ruins and line-of-sight blocking stuff for Taudar and knights and other large uh, models. Okay, so, but, but your terrain still covers a quarter of the table, like one ex- one full table quarter. Yes. Correct. Okay, wow, that's that's that must be pretty cool. Uh, who makes all this terrain? So that's actually the individual who sadly could not join us <laughs> on this podcast today, uh, Nathan Sorensen. Uh, yep. He is our terrain and table man, and he he does a fantastic job. He and his team are absolutely spectacular. Uh, we had some comments uh, this year from players who travel a lot, uh, such as Matt Rutt, uh, who said that, dude, this terrain is awesome. This is like the kind of stuff that I have seen at LVL. Oh, that's a big compliment. Huge compliment. So yeah. we, we – I don't want to say we're super proud and we're – primping all the time but, but you, you know, super proud yep. <laughs> yeah. we're super proud and we're primping yes uh didn't we also get this uh place your own train i think we got it from adepticon so yes this was a an experiment done by adepticon uh at the end of fifth and into sixth edition where they tried to do something very similar where it was like six or seven larger pieces of terrain on the table and terrain was always placed by the players uh, I think the last year they used that, though, was 2013. Uh, I can't remember why they decided to go away from it. 
Maybe maybe because they got a little larger. Um, I, I'm thinking about the LVO right now, and I'm thinking that would be cool to do with the LVO, but also with five with almost 500 players, that might be that might be a bit of a problem. Maybe I don't know. Just because you have such a giant a, hall, and um, for an might, 1850 game, I yeah. would agree. Yeah. For 1650, on the other hand, uh, let me let me check my math again. Oh yeah, 97 percent of the games <laughs> finished anyway. <laughs> The other advantage to having players place their own terrain is, for example, a uh, player shows up to events, he's got his gigantic display board, maybe he doesn't have a great place to put it down. Oh, he's going to place his it army out. right on he the table. He starts moving terrain around. <laughs> he, he shoves it aside, you know, with his board, whatever. So now you don't have to worry about um, a TO coming around, making sure all the terrain is in the right spot. You have you have your players be able to change it around. Yeah, that, that's actually I've the... already done that before the game by accident. <laughs> that's actually the joke is um, that pl- you never have to worry about players playing on the same table because players are always moving terrain around. But it's definitely... You guys are taking it a step further, um, but it's always good to, before the game starts, to take the time to move kind of balance terrain and talk to your opponent and be like, hey, does this terrain setup work for you? And then kind of just discuss the terrain, like, hey, is that a ruin? Is that a hill? Is that not a hill? Is that um, line of sight blocking? Is that impassable? All that's very, very important to talk to, basically for communication to make sure you and your opponent are on the same page and you guys can just, you know, get to the business at hand, which is playing a quick, fun, competitive game. I feel Uh, like I want to play a board that's all lava and it's like, okay, lava's instant death. Just don't go in that lava. That's We might have one of those tables at the the bottom table at Delvio. Those are that's called a, a bottom table table. This is the one <laughs> the, with all the cool fun stuff and um, the mountains and the crazy stuff. But like maybe there's not any line of sight blocking. But that's okay because you know players are, who are playing on it are just gonna have fun. <laughs> so that would be me if I was there. <laughs> cool. All right. Uh, on to the main topic. Uh, today we're going to talk about mission crafting and what missions work for your local meta. Uh, so the reason why I want to talk about this is there are TOs who maybe don't want they maybe don't want to use the ITC missions, which is completely fair. We encourage players uh, TOs to use whichever missions their local meta might want, right? So if you don't want first blood, like at first there's tons of you know alpha strike weird reserve manipulation armies going on in your meta, and first blood is decided all the time. You might want to kick that out. Or uh, if there's a lot of battle company, you might want to consider maybe making kill points something other than just one round. Or a lot of play, I, I actually see a couple of tournaments that if you have a four round event, they don't include purge the alien in those four rounds, and that might be an issue, right? Because a lot of the larger events plan for five or six rounds, and that's where they plan their missions. But if you're playing three or four rounds, like a little small RTT, mission crafting becomes even more important because you you don't have as many rounds to get your tournament right. But because it's three rounds, you don't have as many rounds to you, you have to get you have to make the impact of your tournament positive for the players in three rounds, which is harder to do than in six rounds, right? So yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah, and it and it becomes therefore much more critical for the TO to actually have a quote unquote good balance of mission types, so <clears throat> that each round actually has a natural like prey for it. Right. So or, you know, if that's the route that you want to go, 
such as, okay, I want first round to be objectives because then this weeds out, helps to weed out Death Stars. But then, you know, to kind of give it back to them, I want second round to be kill points so that, you know, Battle Company takes it in the teeth. And then third round, we'll go with a, a hybrid mission that has, you know, uh, holding objectives, but you can also score points by killing things off of objectives or something like that, right? Yes. Uh, so, you know... It, it, it all comes down to, yes, a lot of this is going to be your local meta, but I'm going to use a phrase that uh, Paul from uh, the uh, Warzone Atlanta from Bell Lost Souls uh, crowd uses uh, a lot of times on their podcast, and that's you plan for the middle tables. Yes, 100%. I was just going to say that. Yeah, the, the top tables are always going to have their fun because they're being highly competitive. They're with each other. They know who each other are most of the time, and they're going to have a good day. The bottom tables are there to drink beers and see dice roll and watch cool shit happen. That, that's what they're here for. The middle tables. The middle tables are those guys who are in that realm where they're not quite the super fluffy player and they're not quite the super competitive player, right? It may even the be their first GT. Yeah. Yeah. And it could be even their first GT. And they're looking for, you know, feeling like they've got a shot, but ne they don't necessarily win out, right? They, they at least want a chance, right? And, and that's what a lot the of, majority of them are looking for. There's a lot of middle players who also want to win the game their own way. Um, that's actually, I feel like the majority of middle players, the guys who, who run orcs, the guys who, uh, they run Battle Company, but they don't run White Scar's Battle Company. They run, like, Salamander's Battle Company. Imperial um, Guard. Imperial Guard players. Oh, I, although I think Imperial Guard players are more lean towards the bottom. I, I'm just joking. There are some good Guard players uh, who run just Guard with and kind of forego the Imperium soup and cry. run Pure Guard, <laughs> um, who, who are good players and who try to kind of win their own way, but they might have a harder time. So that's – you're right. I agree. That's the middle – of the road. So how do you cater your missions towards the middle of the road players? So one of the biggest ways you can do that is make sure that your mission, like if you can't do it on an individual mission basis, make sure that the overall flow of the tournament gives a little bit to everybody, right? So have a mission that's, you know, maybe favors battle company, have a mission that maybe favors, you know, long range shooting, have a mission that maybe favors, you know, really assaulty armies, right? That are very much like scrum in the middle types, uh, you know, Try to have, you know, elements of something for each of them in your missions so that everybody can kind of feel like, oh, I'm not totally screwed. I have a chance here. Mm -hmm. Right. And, okay. and, well, and that's what that's what they say about um, when you play a GT is you don't play the army in front of you. You play the mission. If you play the mission, you should win. That's right. true. That's so, true. yeah, it is. And that is super true. And it's something that, you know, uh, a lot of guys uh, – tend to lose sight of, and that maybe is why they're in the middle or the bottom, or it's just their army literally can't compete at that mission. Like, it literally, the army, the way they want to win, cannot compete at that mission, right? So... Well, that's what you want to avoid, hopefully. Uh, right, and you want to avoid that scenario, because that scenario is where the feel-bads happen, yeah, where people absolutely. go, man, but I have to run Dark Eldar today, boo! <laughs> You know, and it's like, no oh, man, that. I don't have Vect anymore. Why? That's, that's the Dark Eldar player voice. Every time I hear Dark Eldar players complaining on the Internet now, I'm going to hear that voice. <laughs> so what you're saying is that Frankie's voice is going to sound like this all the time. Uh, yeah. yeah Actually, yeah. He, his voice already sounds like that all the time. Uh, you guys just oh. don't hear it. <laughs> that's horrible. 
So okay, so there's there's um two types of missions typically. There are yep. objective based missions and there are kill point killing based missions, uh, basically. Um, obviously, the killing missions, there's not a whole lot of dynamics and depth to kill missions. It's kind of just like uh, kill certain units or kill the most units, or uh, if you add an element of time, kill, oh. certain, like your, for example, solo blood, um, kill mm-hmm. units at a specific time. Kill the weapon. Yeah, kill. So it's, there's not much depth there. They all kind of favor more lethal armies in their own way. It basically, if your army has the ability to reach out and kill something at any phase in the game, you, your army will excel at a kill point mission. Or yes. a kill, that's, that's basically it. And you always want a couple of those because you always want the objective to be to kill things on the opponent's board. Uh, because if you don't, you, you might, you will have a more boring game. I know I played a battle company list similar to mine, um, where we just kind of moved models around and we couldn't really kill any of each other's models, not really, without rolling, like, sixes. So it kind of came down to, like, these Marines have been in combat on this objective for the entire game, and none of us are failing saves. Hooray. Or, oops, my bolters didn't roll sixes into the back of your rhino again. Oh, you move, you turned your rhino around, now I can't get, now I have to take two turns to get behind the rhino again to kill it, right? Yep. Um, so so that you, want, you want to encourage players to kill things, always. You all, that's so that should always be one of the things in your missions is some sort of element of having your opponents kill things. And it also speeds the game up. Um, and it also makes the game more tactically fun because if you get to turn six and turn seven and a lot of things died, it then starts uh, to promote the little guys, like the, the mandrakes. <laughs> um, and the right, right. The platoon command, the guys who, who your opponents uh, didn't kill for the entire game who are, it's like, yeah, now it's our turn. We're the only guys left. Uh, all right, cultists, now you guys have to hold this objective. You guys were born and made for coming on turn four and holding this objective. <laughs> it is your what? job. <laughs> What's that, sir? That is what oh we my god. For. Oh. Um, so, and that, that's good. That's, it's same thing in chess, um, and in football and in, uh, any sport really or any comp- competitive thing. The end game is always the most tactical and it's always the, the hardest to kind of do well in because you have more options, but at the same time, your options are also limited, right? Because you don't have your full army, or you don't have um, all options available to you, or you kind of know what your opponent's doing, but your opponent also knows what you're doing, so there's kind of, like, layers of tactical acumen there, right? So that's that's good. Killing killing units is always good in 40k. Uh, that's that's what the game was built around. It's, it just makes the game better. It, yes, yes it is. Killing things is good in 40k. However... It's not the only thing, um, because then we would be playing fantasy, and fantasy's dead. Right? It's true. So, there are no more square bases. They are all gone, and it's like gone. they're not cool enough. Yeah. Uh, so, which leads us to objectives, which is kind of the yin to the kills yang. Right? Um, objective missions, there's there's a bunch of different ways you can run them. Uh, you can control how they're placed, where they're placed, how many objectives there are, when they're scored. Either at the end of the game, or at the end of turns, or at the beginning of turns, um, you can control what scores, what objectives. You can control um, what things are objectives, like, um, for example, Rhino, like the assassination for your primary mission. Um, there's a bunch of things, but basically, objectives wind down to uh, getting points for doing something that isn't killing something, um, or for doing something that isn't just uh, like you may have to move, or you might have to charge, you might have to cast a specific psychic power, or you might have to be in one zone in one spot 
so it's kind of it kind of you need the whole board to for uh, mission objectives basically. Um, so what do you guys feel is the right way to run mission objectives? Because there's so many different ones. So it comes down to what kind of uh, objectives you want your players to play for. Is it just the objective markers, the tokens that get thrown down on the board? And then it becomes how many do you want to do? Uh, generally speaking, an even number is better just because then it forces there to be an actual clear winner in terms of like strategic uh, thinking and performance. So their execution has to be better. Um, and versus having an odd number, which could just be that I have this stupidly hard to kill, you know, Death Guard star sitting on a an objective in the middle of the table going, haha, we have a bunch of plasma guns too. Yay, try to get us. <laughs> on the other hand, having an odd an odd number, it's you know, gives you something to fight over. We both it's got true. two. We've got the one in the middle. We need that one to win, and right. then it's a big scrum. So, so I feel like there's only one way to run an odd number of objectives, and um, you guys can tell me if I'm right or wrong. Uh, and that would be if you placed one objective either in the center or you had objectives set so players didn't place them. Um, because the reason why having an odd number of objectives is tactically bad is because if you uh, roll to place objectives, so you get to place objectives first, one player will get to place three objectives, and another player will get to place two objectives. And even if those three objectives all don't go in the winner's deployment zone, they still get to decide where the majority of the points are in in this show or in, in the game. Correct. And, yeah, and that's why if you're going to do an odd-numbered, uh, just use the Nova deployment for the love of God. Just just do it. One in the center of each table corner and one in the center of the board. It puts them all spaced out evenly and makes each one equally uh, easy and difficult for the players to access. Okay. Yeah. Um. And then, so in terms of mission objectives, there most of the Eternal War missions and all of the Maelstrom missions and the basic rulebook are based off of mission objectives. Um, which ones do you guys like and which ones do you guys wish we could just get away from? So I, I actually do like the scouring and big guns never tire missions. I think they add an element of destruction to an otherwise a purely objective-based game. Uh-huh. Uh, which, which means that, you know, it's not just I have to hold more objectives than you. Let's say that you're playing double CAD. You have six heavy support. Well, I killed all six, and then I hold uh, two objectives. Well, that gave me ten points. You're holding four objectives that and killed none of my heavy support. That's only eight points, and I win, not because I'm holding more ground, but because I strategically, you know, sniped out the things in your army that are also worth victory. Yes, uh, now, the downside of those is you might not have any heavy support or fast attack objectives, right. which which can be a bit of a bummer. Um, but I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing because players, hopefully if you players know what the scouring and big guns that retire are, um, so they can play kind of build their lists around it. Like, for example, with my list, I run 30 warp spiders, and I have two units of razorbacks with assault squads. So that's 10 uh, fast attack choices for my opponent to kill, 10 very easy fast attack choices for my opponents to kill. Um, so I know going into the scouring, I, I need to play that, that mission differently than uh, other missions, right? Because I'm, yeah. I'm already going to be at a disadvantage. Right, so and I, me as, as an Imperial Guard player who uses artillery, I'll be using my artillery and giving orders to ignore cover if I can, trying yes. to get rid of those units. Yeah, you, are, you all of a sudden are saying, well, screw objectives. He's got 10 points in his army right there. 
I need to kill those. And that, that adds another layer of the game. Um, and I personally, as a, as a player who, who I actually, the scouring is actually my favorite mission to play with that army. Um, even though at first glance, it's, it, I would be at a disadvantage. Um, and the reason being is because there's six missions or six objectives on the board, not four, not three, not two. So I, I playing battle company, I have an advantage there that, and I also like fainting my opponent to kind of get, cause those objectives are worth three points and my warp spiders are only worth one. So if I can give up for every objective I hold, I can give up two kind of fast attack choices. So I can kind of like lead my warp spiders away from my opponent. So like if they charge those warp spiders, they'll be in a bad position and I can just win the game with board control. Um, so I, I just really like it. I think it's a really fun game and I'm actually, my record in the scouring is actually really high. Writes down notes in case he plays Pablo. (laughs) (laughs) We'll, We'll see. Uh, but yeah, so you've got those kinds of missions, missions that are, uh, not so bueno. Not so bueno. We're, we're looking at you, Relic. Oh, we're looking at you. Yes. I, I kind of, I, I kind of like the Relic. Um, the problem is that Death Stars are a thing. Right. And and because Death Stars are a thing, uh, that's why I'm looking at you, Relic. Well, it's not just because of Death Stars. Uh, it's because it engenders less tactical play. Uh, it's just giant scrum in the middle. Uh, which, if you've ever played, if you ever played Warhammer in third and fourth edition, um, that's all the game ever came down to was giant scrum in the middle. And then at the the last turn of the game, we jump away from each other and see what objectives we can grab. Which is not fun. <laughs> not uh, not as fun. Yeah, it's not, not as fun. Okay, so it, it so that that brings you know kind of a well the feel bads could happen. And the other reason that the feel bads could happen on that is. Uh, let's say neither one of you are playing a Death Star. Well, now it comes down to a die roll of whose unit actually survives on this thing. It, you know, it might be that last guy or that leadership test that somebody passed or failed that causes the relic to be won or lost. Right. I also don't like the idea that it can be moved. Um, just, just because you know, if, if your if your opponent jumps on it early because you just don't have that style of army, um, mm-hmm. or they just got lucky and they went first and they just jumped on it with, with a really durable unit. They can move it. Um, it's not just they can move it and, oh, it gets moved. It's the model that's holding the relic can drop it anywhere within the model within one inch. Uh, so if yep. you have like a, a grab centurion, right, with a big old 50 millimeter base, that grab centurion that holds that objective can drop it on the exact opposite side of his base. Um, or same thing with bike bases. I do that actually all the time is I will grab a bike, the relic with my bike base and start dragging it away. And then when that guy dies or because the, as the relic states, you can drop it at any time, whenever you want, mm-hmm. you can drop it. I, I can just drop it like on the opposite side of the bike base, one inch away. And then all of a sudden, oops, my tactical squad was waiting right there. They were like four inches away from the relic and now they're on the relic because that's where I dropped it. Now my bike command squad can go deal with other threats while the rhino or the tactical squad can hold that objective. Drop it like it's hot. Drop it yeah. like it's hot. Which, yeah. which is kind of, it kind of, that's kind of one of those things that borderlines on, uh, tactics and shenanigans. Um, yes. Which is kind of like people, I think it, I think it leads more towards shenanigans because every time I do that, people kind of get a little upset and I'm like, well, hey, this is a rule that I'm exploiting that Correct. it's clear. Um, but it doesn't really make sense and, it's making you lose the game by like inches. So it's, it's just shenanigans. Um, so you're right. The relic is, is not a very fun mission. Uh, and yeah. another fun mission that I don't like personally is Emperor's Will. Uh, yep. guys, TOs, can we please stop using Emperor's Will? Please get rid of it forever. 
Yeah, I, I totally agree. It, that's a mission that engenders itself way too much towards draws on the primary, and that's quite frankly uh, obnoxious, not only for the player because it's just like, well, we sat there and we slugged it out at each other, but nobody could get the win. And it's obnoxious for a TO because, well, now I have a bunch of draws, so I have to figure out who's playing who because odds are pretty good. The pairing software is just going to stick all the people who drew right back against each other again. Right. So, so it's just um, – that's not good. Uh, and then Puck has 15 minutes left, um, so we're going to go ahead and let him go, and then we'll, we'll speed this up a little bit with these missions. Is there anything else – anything specific about Maelstrom missions that you guys like or maybe would want to change? I like the fact that you can choose your Maelstrom missions and you, know, you have to be tactical about it. You avoid the whole I roll, you know, objective two, three times in a roll, and that's how I win. You know, yeah. you, in our format, you, you pick it once and then you move on. You got to choose something else. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, yeah. Basically, with the, the number, the golden rule of crafting missions for your event is don't let the dice decide the mission. Like, you want to eliminate that yep. as much as possible, and you want to put as much of the missions, um, the way the mission's going to go, in the player's hands. Uh, so that's why First Blood isn't good, because the die decides who gets First Blood. Um, that's why, uh, like you said, Maelstrom isn't good, but isn't very fun, because the card draw or the dice roll, you sometimes determines how it goes. Uh, so you just, you want to, the point of missions is to have some continuity in your event, and that's it. It's, yeah, and yeah. it's all about you know, forging that narrative of, you know, this is a progressive battle where this army has to chew through five, you know, three, four, five, six other armies in order to get to its final objective, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, in real warfare, it's always asymmetrical. Yes, you and I are here in the same neighborhood slugging it out, right? You know, my uh, my battalion versus yours. However... It doesn't mean that we're here for the same reason. Like you could, you could be here to, you know, uh, so let, let's, you know, this may hit a little too close to home for some people, but, uh, the real world scenario for this would be, uh, you know, insurgents versus, uh, you know, an, an official, uh, army of, uh, whoever, right. We'll use the United States or, uh, NATO as the example here. Okay. But so you have, so you have a standing force, uh, in uniform, yada, yada. Uh, and they have military equipment. They're coming here. Well, then now you have this insurrection force, right, uh, vis-a-vis maybe their terrorist cell, a rebel uprising, whatever. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. But their object, you know, the, the objective of the standing army force is to just secure the area, gain ground, hold the table, right? Right. Table quarters. Well, the insurgents plan here is actually to turn this place into a booby trap. So they're actually here to uh, plant bombs and eliminate very specific units from the standing army, right? Assassination, right? And so those two two forces are in the same area at the same time operating against each other, but they're there for very different reasons. Right. I actually actually like that analogy or um, that that – metaphor that whatever whatever you just called that <laughs> I, I i like that comparison thank you i was i was, was thinking for that right word i like that comparison a lot because you're absolutely correct uh not every army like your space marines aren't going to care about holding uh in a xenos world right so why would crusader matter for them right why would they want territory they want to kill xeno scum right xeno exactly. scum they maybe they're a gene circle and 
the space marines just happen to be on some key resources that they need because they're poor miners that can't afford chimeras and lemon russes. So I, I agree. I agree that that should be another element to your mission crafting is um, I, I think that you should have different mission, different primary missions at least, or just some, something that opponents – because not every player is the same, so they might not want to play the same thing or they might not want to go for the same thing. Right. So yeah, and you can either do that by having the each individual round has, you know, the players picking their missions and then they they get to do what they want vis-a-vis Renegade format, Nova format, uh to a lesser extent ETC ATC format. Yes. Uh, or you can pre-plan your tournament so that there's a certain narrative of well, in each round a style of play is going to be at an advantage. Hopefully not at a massive advantage. Um, so that it get, leaves field bads, but you, you can plan it out that way so that round one, uh, battle company is going to suck. Round two, Death Stars are going to suck. Round three, Outflankers are going to suck. Round four, Null Deploy is going to suck, etc. right? Yes. So, you know, it, it just comes down to how you as a TO want to present the the missions, right? Do you, do you want to present it in a restrictive format where you say and that's not necessarily a bad thing so don't don't confuse that word for being negative here mm-hmm. but in, in a restrictive format of you know each progressive mission is difficult for a different type of army or do you want a more uh quote unquote strategically open format where you know your players are picking the stuff that they get to do each round and it may not necessarily be the same thing Right. Like, say, yeah. there's a progressive mission and then there's a, you know, end game mission or there's a kill mission and an objective mission, whatever. OK. Uh, and then deployment zones. Uh, I don't I, I've never understood completely deployment zones. I know Hammer and Anvil favors like shooty armies. Um, Vanguard kind of favors assaulty armies. Uh, but I think it actually favors more reserve manipulation armies because you get that long edge. Mm-hmm. So you can kind of control that from there. And then, of course, Dawn of War is Dawn of War. And it favors kind of – I feel like Dawn of War favors uh, more elite armies because Horde armies tend to be more spread out, um, so they can't take advantage of their of their numbers. So just think about those three things. Each deployment zone is different and does favor completely different styles of armies. Uh, so you don't want to – you don't want to um, make Hammer and Anvil the kill point mission, for example, mm-hmm. right? Because if – your assault, if your opponent or if your uh, one of your players has an assault-based army, and that's how they get their kill points, and all of a sudden they play Tau, and all the you know like they lose because they're playing Hammer and Anvil. Uh, so you might want like Vanguard for a kill point mission, uh, maybe Dawn of War, but I think Vanguard's probably the best for a kill point mission. But just, just kind of keep that in mind when you're crafting your missions. All right, uh, so that concludes the um, theory crafting for um, crafting missions. If you guys like that, let me know. I'll uh, see so if you guys have any interesting missions. I love hearing new missions and playing new missions that I find online. Um, I'm actually particularly fond of Age of Sigmar narrative missions because those can get really creative uh, and really fun. So just tell me if, if you guys, if that works out for you or if you guys uh, have any missions or if you guys have any bad missions that happen to you, maybe, maybe like a bad story of when you lost because the mission was terrible or because you pulled like kill a fortification for Maelstrom when you needed to pull anything else, literally anything else. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. But we're going to go move on into Imperial Agents. Uh, David, I know you don't have the book, but uh, from the rumors, what do you think? So 
uh, from the rumors, uh, it's clear that this is supposed to be a uh, Inquisition replacement primarily, and that uh, the whole point of this is to bring all of the forces of the Inquisition under one roof. And that's not to say that Death Watch is losing its book or Grey Knights is losing its book or maybe even Sisters is losing their book, although it sounds like that at least temporarily uh, this is going to be their replacement. Yes, we will have more on that later. Um, yes. But uh, I think what this more is is that this is supposed to introduce a uh, Inquisition army where you actually have access to the specialized forces of each branch – pardon me – each branch of the Inquisition. So for your Ordo Malleus, uh, not only do you have his war bands that uh, an Inquisitor of the Ordo Malleus has access to – Right, normally, but then he also has access to certain Grey Knight units uh, that can supplement his force as well, right? Such as Terminators, Strikes, and I believe the other rumored unit for them was Interceptors. Actually, uh, so so yes, so the idea is is that um, it consolidates all of the different codices, the, those agents of Imperium codices like Legion of the Damned, who aren't really agents of Imperium, but whatever. We'll skip past that. Um, <laughs> the uh, the Grey Knights of Death Watch, the the Imperial, the Inquisition themselves, the Sisters of Battle, etc., into one book, which is good. Um, but actually, they are all still separate factions. Oh, cool. Yeah. So the there's a formation in there that is the Henchman Warband formation that kind of replaced the Henchman Warband from the Inquisition book. Instead, it's one formation where all the units form all the all the units form one single big unit. Um, so you can get like an Inquisitor and then all of his henchmen. That you mm-hmm. can pick, and that's that still stays the same, but you have to take acolytes. And then you can also add in, depending on who which Inquisitor you pick, like you said, you can add in a Death Watch kill team, a Grey Knight Terminator squad, or a Sisters of Battle battle squad or Battle Sister squad. That's it, and they all become one unit. Okay, so um, much in the same way as forming a kill team does yes. for Death Watch. Exactly. Uh, it's not it's not great. Um, I think it's kind of a poor substitute for the Henchman Warband. Uh, but I do like the idea of getting a Death Watch kill team, like a full 10-man Death Watch kill team, and then throwing in Joe Cairo in there with them as well. Uh, <laughs> oh, God. So, so you get, like, 36-inch frag cannons instead of 24-inch frag cannons. Oh. oh, okay. Well, yeah. that's, that's... Oh, God. Does frag cannons say half-range or 12-inch specifically? For I, think, the... I think they're flamer templates, and I think they're – I think it's 12 inches, I think – Okay, so so they'd only get an extra twelve inches for their seven three shots, which is still really good. Pretty good. Um, you just, at least it's not eighteen inch assault two las cannons. That's that would be. Free. Uh, you also get rending bolt guns. Yep. Um. So. Oh, you, good. Rending, rending on wounds cover. on two plus or yeah. ignores cover. All yeah. right. Uh, um. And then they can give them a two up armor save if you get that plus one armor save or a five up invuln, which is kind of eh, whatever. Um, well, uh, see, a lot of people okay. poo-poo five-up invulns. Five-up invulns are stupefyingly good, especially if you can get them for a relatively low cost across a unit. A primary example of that is uh, Tau Breachers, who I know got mentioned earlier uh, this week well, on uh, on uh, the Twitch cast. Yeah. But uh, the you know it, it costs a Tau unit of Breachers 22 points because they have to buy a sergeant and then one guardian drone. To get a five-up invuln. Five-up invuln doesn't sound great, except that it spoils a third of the unit of the models that your opponent was counting on being dead. 
That's important. That's, I've actually never thought about five up inbounds like that, but that's what makes demons so durable and so yep. strong. Exactly. And, yep. and it's, it's just a spoiler. That's all it is, man. I mean, like, uh, I had an instance at Iron Halo GT where a guy leveled his Avenger Gatling cannon at a unit of breachers who got caught out in the open after they, uh, wiped out, uh, some heralds and they, they didn't all die. Right. I, I, he, he did eight wounds to me and he killed five and I'm like, sweet. I still have half the squad there instead of just two dudes hanging out in the breeze. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, <laughs> and that's a five up invuln. That's what it does. It doesn't save you. You're not going to be invincible. You're not a death star, but it does give you that, you know, slight spoiler edge that just says you didn't quite get all of us. That's, that's okay. Um, Fair enough. Five up invuln. I'm gonna I'm gonna run that unit at least once. I'm gonna run my Death Watch kill team and the three Jokero models that I have that I've had forever. Uh, and then uh, an Inquisitor. I'll just find an Inquisitor. It's not maybe a Xenos Inquisitor. I like. Oh, well, it has to be a Xenos Inquisitor. Um, but you know, we'll see. I think it sounds silly. Uh, the the other two big things in the book that we might be able to take away from are obviously Saint Celestine is gone. Yep. Uh, and GW. On their Facebook page, which is an official term, and you guys might have already heard this on Signals from the Frontline, which happened this Monday. Uh, this podcast airs on Saturdays. Uh, GW on their Facebook page said that this book is meant to replace the Sisters of Battle digital codex, uh, which means we could probably assume that Serval Skulls are also gone forever. Yep. Yeah. Because they are not in this book. Yes. Um, so what that means is that, uh, first off, White Scars Battle Company players, congratulations. You didn't need it. But for the one of you who is going to make the top eight of the LVO, uh, you should send GW a thank you card, or specifically the guy who wrote the Imperial Agents book a thank you card, um, because your army just got significantly stronger. And Gene Cult should as well, because guess what? You just ended the argument. No right. one gets to question it anymore. <laughs> right, right, because that was that was a big debate, and I was on the Servo Schools didn't affect Gene Steeler Cult uh, train, which mm-hmm. was which was actually really controversial. Um, but now we don't even have to worry about it because Servo Schools are gone. They're they're gone, and now it's like, well, whatever. Gene Circle, they can just do it now. Don't worry about it. Um, yeah. Do all the cool things, man. <laughs> but it really affects the meta, I think, negatively. Uh, but a lot of people might disagree with me. Uh, so, David, what do you think? How do you, do you think it affects it positive? Do you think it's positive or negative? Uh, I think in terms of Imperial armies that don't uh, necessarily have a ton of deployment or movement shenanigans uh, for early game or late game, or rather, uh, early game or mid game. Servo skulls were a very nice patch job uh, to keep things like Dark Angels, uh, you know, from just scouting all the way up. Or even, uh, say, War Convocation with all their Skatari units. Yes. They didn't get to scout up. Or anybody else, right, trying to infiltrate or scout closer. Uh, the other big use, though, that I saw for the Servo skulls was using it to reduce the scatter for your own deep strikes for your units coming down or for uh, your blast weapons, right? So, uh, which could be huge because now all of a sudden I'm only scattering 1d6 uh, against, you know, that giant horde of zombies that is coming at me. Sweet. I'm going to maximize my hits. Ah, excellent. I hit 10 of you instead of two. I'm much happier with this result. (laughs) Okay. Um, So, you know, I think, I agree that it takes away elements of strategy and interaction in the game uh, from from that standpoint, and it does make a lot of armies that were already considered weak weaker, 
because they can't patch job that in anymore with an ally of convenience or battle brother uh, set of servo skulls. Yes. Which is really unfortunate. Uh, but from an overall game uh, design standpoint, I understand why GW would want to remove that because it's yeah. one less pre-game interaction that has to be worried about. It's one yeah. less thing that we have to do in the setup. Yeah, and I imagine uh, people are using it not the way GW intended it to be used. I imagine that was probably a very thing. They're probably like, what? Tau are taking Inquisitors with servo skulls? Why? <laughs> why? What? What Inquisitor, heretical or otherwise, would even be working with these guys? Who would who would game our game like that? <laughs> oh, man, they must be a bunch of, you know, fun-hating jackasses. Right. Um, so, so oh. I, I think, I think, I think you're right. Um, it's, it's negative, it's positive. Okay, so the positives of it are Tau and Eldar get hurt the most. Um, yep. Tau now have to start bringing their pathfinders again um, to stop infiltrate, to stop scout moves and to stop other infiltrators. And Eldar have to take, like we were talking, joking on signals. We, they might have to start taking Mandrakes. Who knows? <laughs> um, uh, but but it's, I think overall negative because Alpha Strikes are just as bad as Death Stars and unkillable Super Heavies and Battle Company for the meta. The, the alpha strikes are unhealthy because if you, in a in a world where alpha strikes exist, right? Let's just imagine yep. that Death Stars are gone, uh, Battle Company is gone, and all you have right now are alpha strike lists. Every army has the ability to alpha strike. Then it comes down to who gets who wins the reserve, who wins the the deployment role, always, because yep. that's what an alpha strike is. And then on top of that, it games will finish too quickly and players will lose before they get any interaction with their opponent whatsoever. Um, and Interceptor is not the answer because Tau pretty much solely have access to that. And even Tau Interceptor yeah. isn't the catch-all for Alpha Strikes. Um, so Alpha Strikes are are generally checked um, by things like Service Goals, right? Especially because Service Goals are so easily accessed. Most most armies can access them one way or another, right? Through out, even um, Desperate Allies. So you get the ability for cheap, 34 points. Um, you get the ability to cut off an opponent's uh, ability to kill you turn one, like absolutely dominate you. And that's not bad. That's not a bad thing. Um, I don't know if you're going to see more Alpha Strike lists. I think you probably are. I know you're definitely going to see the Scouting Grav Company army, which people are already complaining about, um, which is already really common in the meta. So you'll probably see that a little more. And then you might see... Uh, War Convocation, maybe more infiltrating War convocation armies now that they lost their draw pods, their taxi service. I don't know. Yep. David, what do you think? Uh, I, I definitely think that those are the two big armies that you're going to see make a resurgence based on Servo Skulls being gone. Um, it, you know, and it, uh, you know, it just it takes away options from players, and I'm never in favor of that. Yes. Um, honestly, I think one of the re- real reasons that we are seeing a resurgence of 40k through 7th edition isn't just good boy GW has finally decided to interact with us or, <laughs> you know, that they've now have the leadership to do so, right? Yes. Uh, it's it's also players have a stupefyingly high number of choices to make in terms of what army to play in addition to how to construct their army. And when you give people more choices, they're generally speaking going to be happier people. Absolutely. You know, freedom of choice is like the number one thing that, especially like gamers like, they don't, they don't like restrictive rule sets that keep them from doing things that they want to be doing. No, absolutely not. No one, no one likes being shoehorned into specific strategies. Um, even if, 
even if they they were going to and I say this a lot, even if they were going to run Eldar anyways, right? Mm-hmm. Hypothetically, um, they still would like the idea of of having other options. Like I, if, for example, if Wave Serpents got taken out of the game tomorrow, a lot of Eldar players would complain, even though none of them use Wave Serpents anymore. Right. Um, ditto on Saint Celestine. Uh, there are very, very few sisters players. I know there's a lot of sisters players clamoring for plastic models, and I feel I feel like a lot of that is bluffing, honestly. Like I feel like if GW would release plastic sisters tomorrow, um, everyone would be like, "Yay, hooray!" But I don't think plastic sisters sales would go through the roof. Personally, um, I don't well, know just because uh, of the rules of the, the army. The one other time that this has happened, where an army was super unpopular for a very long time. And then all of a sudden, a whole new range came out for them. Uh-huh. Was Dark El- was Dark Eldar back yes. in 5th edition. <laughs> oh, no. And for three and a half months, Dark Eldar outsold everything else, everything else. Oh, no. In the GW range. It absolutely blew their damn minds. They had no idea what was coming. They were out of product for all of their lines of Dark Eldar models for like two months before they could actually have enough again to go, yes, we've got stuff in the web cart and we're not filling back orders. Who wants some? (laughs) And then the Codex came out. And then the Codex came out. And that that fifth ed book was actually really nice. It it wasn't bad. It wasn't a bad Codex. It wasn't a bad Codex. It had a lot of good options in it. It wasn't quite the, uh, of the day, the Blood Angels, Razorback Spam. Grey Knights. uh, The Grey Knights or the Necrons afterwards. But it was um, solid. But it was a very solid army. It, w- it was definitely a second tier, you know, tier almost tier one and a half, but second tier army that could be played by an optimal player very well. Okay, so so do you think if do you think sisters are in that same boat with yes. their codex? Okay, I, I think they've had a very subpar codex and a very subpar model line now. Like, don't get me wrong, for when those models came out back in the late 90s, early 2000s, they were good-looking models. Yes. They were, okay? But they are now 13 years at the youngest and almost 18 years at the oldest. That's not a good thing anymore. No, absolutely not. So, you know, and yes, you technically have this large stock and you sell them still, GW. And we, we, we like that they are there as an option, but I'm being charged $45 for five Battle Sisters, and I can't change their guns at all. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, I, I maybe you're right. Um, maybe the that little change of models will definitely help. I just I just don't know if the rules for sisters, especially now that Celestine's gone. Celestine wasn't blowing up tables. She wasn't, you know, the a number one pick for Imperium armies, and she she was barely even a number one pick for pure sisters of battle armies. Um, you kind of if you ran a pure sisters of battle army and you had Celestine, you had the runner with Seraphim, or, yep. or which was yeah, Seraphim are okay. Um, so she was kind of underwhelming even in a vanilla Sisters of Battle list. Uh, but she was such an iconic character. She's one of my favorite characters, one of my favorite models. And they just took her out. And now it's like, well, why why would you play Sisters at this point? Well, um, at this point, it's because you like, quote unquote, nuns with guns. Nuns with guns. And I'm sure there's a few people out there. Uh, it's just losing St. Celestine, losing that option made people mad. And that, that was kind of my point, is that um, it made yeah. a lot of people mad when not a lot of people were already running St. Celestine. 
maybe people have maybe a lot of people had Saint Celestine models, um, but I see mm-hmm. more people who've never played Sisters at all who who are upset that they lost Saint Celestine, and I think that's the overall. I think the reason is because they lost that option, um, yep. or maybe that their hobbies maybe they're losing a key figure. I don't know. Maybe they think that they're going to lose like their Calgar. Right, like maybe right. next. I know I would be pissed if if GW got rid of Calgar. I would be, I'd be mad. Like, listen, oh. what are you guys doing? You, oh, you mean that model oh. I spent 36 hours on painting? Yes. yes, yes, yes. I would totally love it if I couldn't play with him anymore. Right. That would be fantastic. Um, yeah. So, and that, and that's also um, uh, for to take to bring it back down to competitive 40k. That's also yeah. uh, why generally it's not always good to ban certain models or to ban models. Um, yep. that's, that's why it's, it's a, lo- a lot of people are really upset when you talk about banning the supremacy suit, for example, um, yep. because people spend time and the and effort on the supremacy suit. And they want to play with their models. Um, but the opposite side of that, the balance to that is that if you let allow people to play their supremacy suit and um, players who paint their beautifully painted uh, Blood Angels army, they can't deal with a supremacy suit. All of a sudden they don't get to use their army. Or their models that right. they painted, right? Because of yep. your opponent's one model. Um, so that's that's kind of where the balance is. Uh, you always you're always going to piss someone off. Um, in this case, you would either piss off the supremacy suit player or the blood angels player. Uh, you kind of just have to decide who you're going to piss off the least. Right. So and, think about yeah, it. and and that does come back to options and yes, you know, Celestine was never an like you said, Celestine was never blowing up tables, but she was always a solid. HQ option. She was reasonably tough. She could come back, uh, and she, you know, and you could not, if you couldn't kill her outright, you weren't going to get to slay the warlord. And then there was a chance that she just, you know, pops up somewhere else on the table and then runs away, and you yes. never get warlord, right? Yeah. Hit and run. So she, yeah, and she has hit and run. She carries a strength five AP three sword. That's, <laughs> you know, you may think AP three bad. No, 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 no. AP3 good. It ignores two thirds of the armor in the game. Well, yeah, that's that's a backline. Four out of five. She, she's really, gonna because there's no one plus. Yeah, you don't want her charging like cultists or uh, nurglings or anything really. It, she's gonna get in there and she's gonna wreck something. Oh um, look, I'm T3. Yeah. Oh good, I'm just getting cut to ribbons. Hooray! <laughs> uh, um, so yeah, so the Imperial Agents book. Uh, I think competitively, I think GW kind of dropped the ball on this one. Um, but at the same time. I'm kind of interested to see how much it speeds up the game, uh, you know, in terms of just because people, when people were running a lot of the Inquisition books, or I guess Inquisition, Codex Inquisition is the big offender here. Uh, people yeah. would run Codex Inquisition on their tablet or their phone, and they'd have to like look it up uh, and kind of look up the models. This in this case, you can just actually just look it up in a book, which is a lot faster usually. More often but, than not, yes. But it's also another book they have to carry. I don't know. It's up in the air. It's overall, I think it's overall kind of negative for the competitive meta. Um, I, I would agree. Uh, in terms of, especially the servo skull impact. Um, oh, I suppose this is another question for it. Uh, did they lose cybolts? No, they have they have cybolt ammunition. Um, so, is cybolt ammunition applicable to infantry squads? I don't know. Um, See, they, so this is where, where where maybe it tips back for competitive. So this would be something that, for those of you, when you get your books, can look this up. 
But if they still have Cybolt ammunition, or especially if they gave it back to, say, the Grey Knight Terminators oh, or anybody. No, oh. no, they didn't. No, Cybolt ammunition, okay. it's in the book, but it's only for Inquisi- in the Inquisition Codex. Partially. So it's only it's only for the Inquisition. Okay, so it's still only on their Razorbacks and their Chimeras, effectively. Basically, uh, okay. I do have a positive though, which which you reminded me of. Thank you. Um, they it they updated this book, so this book has the updated FAQ from the relevant FAQs that they released for the drafts. Um, for example, Kodiaz in his rule it says specifically that he can use it as many times as he wants. They they confirmed it. They said, you know what? Awesome. You can use this as many times as you want. We are sorry. Here's a new updated book. And that that's good. Uh, they clarified things like the Kalexis Assassin's uh, ability to work outside transports. That's mm-hmm. clarified. Um, Cypel ammunition from Sisters, which I think is really strong. I think it's better than Sisters of Silence, actually. Um, not Cypel ammunition. Condemn their bolt guns. Yes. Uh, they are on a hit. So if they hit, they cause a Perils of the Warp test. Which is and it's they hit the unit, right? Yes, they hit the when yes. they hit the unit, the unit causes perils of the warp test, which is strong because you can take a sister's command squad and give them all condemned their bolt guns, and then um, you drive them up because they don't have drop pods anymore. <laughs> you drive yep. them up in a rhino or something, and then they all pop out and rawr, kill something pink horse. It's not it's not the most amazing thing in the world, but it's cool. Oh, it's extra wounds, and ec- there's nothing ever bad for extra wounds. They can kill Magnus that way. Uh, ooh, yes, if yes, Magnus, it can. <laughs> if Magnus is on the ground, or if he gets grounded, um, and the psychic phase in your in your psychic phase, it's Boop. it's not you know it's not it's not foolproof. But if if they get Magnus, Magnus, well, he doesn't take perils of the warp. Never mind. Uh, Fate yeah. Weaver. Fate Weaver though does. Fate Weaver would. Yeah. It wouldn't kill yeah. Magnus. Magnus is too strong for the warp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's okay though. He should be. He's 650 points. He's he's so he's less he's more points than a supremacy suit. Yes, that which says more about the supremacy, the supremacy suit. suit. Yeah. yeah, yeah. All right, David. Um, well, thank you for being on my podcast. That was the Imperial Agents book. I'm sorry we didn't go more in depth. I, I just felt like there wasn't a lot in there. Uh, some other notes, things real quick before we hit uh, log off. Some other notes in the Imperial Agents book is. There is a formation or a detachment that lets you take one priest, um, which is cool. You don't have to take any Imperial Army or any army can take a priest, um, just just a priest by himself, nothing oh, cool. else, which is cool. You don't have to pay a tax for a priest. You can just yeah. take them and boom, plop them in whatever Death Star. All of a sudden, you're fearless. Um, whatever kind of blob you want, just throw them in there now. Uh, and then there's another thing. There's a uh, interesting psychic psychic form detachment, which uh, lets you take a Primary Psyker and Weird Vein Psykers. And that mm-hmm. basically gives free warp charge to Imperial armies. The free cheap warp charge, not free, um, cheap warp charge to Imperial armies. That's pretty right. awesome. So the only real taxes then for those are they cost you a detachment. Yes. Okay. That's not bad. No, That's not bad. Not bad. That's not bad at all. All right, David. Well, thank you for being on Chapter Tactics. Uh, I will thank Puck when I next talk to him. Um, and then, guys, if you guys want to send a list for the list lab, we went a little long today, so there won't be another list. I know they said there I would review two lists, and I might still 